The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines this morning. Stocks rally into the end of a volatile month amid signs of a cool down in US-China tensions just days before fresh tariffs on Chinese goods come into effect. Former Italian Prime Minister and leader of the PD party, Matteo Renzi, tells me that he will not join the new government due to personal issues with Star, but reassures investors that Rome is open for business. I cannot stay in the government with the Five Star Movement. I can vote the vote of confidence, I can support, I can block Salvini, and I can give a message to international investors, please invest in Italy. Boris Johnson vows to step up the tempo on Brexit talks as the British Prime Minister braces for a showdown in Parliament next week with opposition leaders ready to ignite attempts to block a no deal. And prominent Hong Kong activist Joshua Wong and other pro-democracy leaders have been arrested ahead of another weekend of planned protests in the Chinese territory. got to love a chart, haven't you? I mean, the day chart, as you can see on my left hand screen. Um, good morning, by the way, everybody. Very rude of me not to say hello to you all, first of all. Um, yeah, so look, here's yesterday's chart. Very positive stuff as well. Uh, the Nasdaq up 1.5%, the S&P uh, and the Dow within a decimal of the same performance as well, both up 1.26% if we take the mean as well. And yet the week-to-day performance, again, as Jeff said, rally into the end of the month, looking very strong, up 2.9% the Dow, 2.7% the Nasdaq, 2.9% the Nasdaq, and the S&P up 2.7% as well. But month to date, eight out of 11 sectors are down in negative territory. And yet the year to date, so depending on your time frame, you can make a very good argument about performance on either side of the ledger. Year to date, 10 out of 11 sectors are up. So month to date, eight out of 11 down. Year to date, 10 out of 11 sectors are up. Only energy just scraping the barrel down 0.6% on the year to date. Technology, again, I'm sure you're all aware of this, is up around about 28%. The stocks moving to the upside yesterday, uh, well, it was across the board, wasn't it, as we just mentioned, but it did include some very big exporting stocks that are looking towards the global trade story, looking towards the China trade story as well. So we saw Caterpillar 2.5% to the good Deer & Co up by a similar margin and Micron Technology 3.5% higher. Oh, looking at the treasuries as well. Uh, Inversions, is it different this time? Does it matter because of what the central banks are doing as well? Well, 1.5079% for the 10-year. For the two-year, 1.526. So the yield on the two-year, a decimal higher than the 10-year. And all the way out to the 30-year paper, you get a mighty 1.97% in terms of the yield. Right, let's have a look at the dollar crosses with the yuan as well. Uh, Yuan, of course, continuing to weaken 7.15%. The dollar yuan pair, dollar yen, 106.37. So what does I saw on the Japanese data? 27-year low on unemployment and yet 
and yet they're still struggling with the same conundrum that everyone else is, is how do you turn people who have got their jobs with solid salaries into people who have got their jobs with solid salaries that spend money? Therein lies the issue for the central bankers. Uh, Eurodollar trading 110 and cable. Well, I had a lovely day down at Westminster yesterday, uh, encapsulated, I thought, by the fact that within 10 minutes or so, I'd interviewed uh, an arch Remainer from the Conservative Party and an arch Brexiteer from the Conservative Party, completely and utterly disagreeing with each other. And they weren't even on different sides uh, of the benches, of course. Uh, cable 121.83 amidst the Brexit Ferrari. Let's have a look at the Asian indices very briefly before we get to my good chum, Jeffrey Cutmore. Uh, they are up across the board, ASX 200, 1.4% higher. And as I walk back, I'll just tell you what the opening calls are. There we go. Seen mildly <laughs> Just staggering my walk. 7,200 for the FTSE 100. Good morning. Which is, uh, very good morning to you, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because we've had a bit of a, a, a round turn uh, through the week. And as we come back to the end of the week, we are back with the markets... Uh, viewing the change in tone or shift in tone in that trade story as one of the catalysts to be higher to the end of the week here. The bulls have not yet been cowed, it seems to me. No. And as you were pointing out, and I think you've made a very good point there about the sectors across the year to date, ultimately the momentum is still with the market, regardless of the noise we continue to hear around gold, the yen, and, of course, out of all of those delicious um, uh, Cassandra-like scenarios for recession in 2020. Look, I mean, even regardless of all of that stuff, the yield on the S&P has straight, stayed extraordinarily stable throughout all of this, as indeed has the FTSE 100, as indeed it has on the European indices. You get a decent, chunky yield above 2% across the board, nearly 5% in the case of the FTSE 100. When you've got yields on 2, 5, 10-year, etc., etc., falling aggressively as people continue to buy um, sovereign paper still, of course the stock market, if it wobbles at all, looks stunningly attractive on a relative valuation. I know, as Andy Bruff once said to us, I can't eat relative valuation. Mm. It's, you can't buy cans of beans with relative valuation, but a lot of people do look at that as a measure of whether they carry on buying these stocks still, regardless of the trade worries. Haven't seen Andy for a while. It'd be nice to catch up with him, wouldn't <laughs> it? it? Would, Just yeah, to see absolutely. how he's doing with his UK fund. Um, let's talk about the developments on the trade front. The US and China have signalled they will resume in-person trade negotiations in September, President Trump said fresh discussions taking place would be held at a, quote, different level in a Fox News radio interview. He didn't elaborate on what that meant, but a White House official told CNBC, quote, both sides remain in communication at various levels. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said face-to-face -face talks for next month are being discussed. Eunice has more from Beijing. Two days until new tariffs kick in. On Sunday at midnight Eastern Standard Time or noon here in Beijing, $125 billion worth of Chinese goods will be subject to a 15% U.S. tariff instead of a 10% one. And one minute later... China will impose tariffs on its first tranche of $75 billion of U.S. goods in a range of 5 to 10%. 1,717 items are on the list, including agricultural products, 
like soybeans. China is urging the U.S. to call off the additional tariffs, saying the move would create favorable conditions so the two sides can make progress at the September talks. The Commerce Ministry hinted that Beijing might not retaliate against the newest tariffs. The Trump administration says senior officials are speaking over the phone, though no word on whether it would lift the taxes. The U.S. business community is calling for an end to the duties. The head of the U.S. chamber wrote a piece in the Washington Post entitled Lift the Tariffs and Restart Trade Talks with China. The chief of the U.S.-China Business Council said his members are in China for the long term and are encouraging the two sides to get back to the negotiating table. Meanwhile, the Nikkei is reporting that authorities are putting more restrictions on the banks on converting the yuan into other currencies and on real estate developers' access to foreign currency bonds, possibly a sign the authorities here are getting nervous about capital flight with the weaker yuan. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. Uh, Thanos Van Pakidis is with us, global head of G10FX strategy at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Thanos, good morning to you. Uh, Steve and I were opining on the round trip we've had in the markets this week. We've come back to this point where risk on does seem to be back on the in the driving seat. What does that mean for your world, where, where we are in FX? Well, a lot is driven by the headlines on uh, trade uh, policy. Uh, we started uh, the week uh, with a substantial escalation in trade, ten- trade tensions between the US and China. And now we're back to hoping that uh, we'll go back to the negotiating uh, table. Uh, definitely, this is also affecting uh, FX. Uh, yen has been supported during all this uh, roller coaster because of uh, uh, demand for safe havens. The dollar, despite being overvalued, has also been uh, supported. At the end of the day, tariffs lead to a currency uh, appreciation. Uh, the other side of this story is that uh, high beta currencies uh, are weakening. Uh, Kiwi has weakened substantially, including because of weak data in New Zealand. Aussie has been under pressure. The euro also uh, remains relatively weak. So it's a typical risk-on, risk-off move in FX markets, responding to the headlines and the latest developments on trade policy. And just to be clear, dollar wins both ways, right? Um, Risk-on, people want to own U.S. assets, dollar goes up. Risk-off, people buy the dollar because they think it's a safe haven still. That's actually true up to an extent. The dollar is overvalued, according to our estimates, by about 10%. And despite the fact that the Fed is cutting rates, the dollar actually remains supported. And I could say that the risks are still to the upside. Thanos, how can... Good morning, my friend. How are you? Nice to see you. How can the dollar be overvalued by 10% when... uh, Do you want to get up the 10-year yield, ladies and gentlemen, on the uh, German paper? When On the German paper, when the US has got a yield of 1.5% for its 10-year paper, and the, and the Germans are, look at that, what do we get for the German paper? Minus 0.7. So I'll take my 1.5 over your minus 0.7, despite my 10% uh, wrong valuation. No, that's actually exactly the point. When we talk about valuation, it's more uh, based on long-term indicators, such as uh, the current okay, account balance. OK, I'll take my US growth uh, at 2% as of last night, as opposed to your contraction in the German economy. No, exactly. This is what it is. <laughs> when you look at the data, when you look at trade differentials, you can fully justify the strength of the dollar. As long as the U.S. is doing better than the rest of the world, and as long as high uncertainty remains, the dollar will remain overvalued. In order for the I'll dollar... I'll take my growth in EPS on U.S. corporations compared to yours on the Germans. No, exactly. But, but this is, a, this but, is exactly again, what supports the dollar. Medium term, short term, medium term, long term. And, and again, look, I, I'm not here to be an apologist for U.S. stocks. I am not here to tell viewers to buy U.S. stocks. In fact, quite the opposite. I have great caution about a lot of valuations out there. But but everywhere I look, I see underperforming Western markets historically and indeed on future projections compared with the United States. 
No, it's true. When we talk about valuation and equilibrium in exchange rate, you reach this point when both economies, the U.S. and the rest of the world in this case, grow at potential. Now we're in a situation in which the U.S. is growing above potential and the rest of the world is growing below potential. This is keeping the dollar of value. Well, let me ask you about the euro specifically, because Steve referenced the, the German growth story. Of course, the inflation data yesterday was a real stinger. That was a, a surprise miss uh, to the weaker side. And the market is looking at how the ECB now may be preparing its next shot at trying to stimulate activity. Do you want to own euro on the prospect of a rally around a very strong ECB response or do you want to sell euro because the inflation data suggests that yields can go lower? I think the risk for the euro, at least in the short term, are still to the downside. We do expect the ECB to cut rates by 20 bips in September. A small QE might even be possible by the end of uh, the year. But more importantly, uh, the data are still against the euro. There are risks for the euro uh, coming from trade war risks, not only between the US and China, but also between the US and the EU. And we're also concerned that the market might be underestimating the negative implications of a non-deal Brexit on the European economy. So at this point, I see more risk to the downside on the euro. I will also add that no matter what the ECB does, it will fail to support the Eurozone economy. The problem is not with monetary policy in the Eurozone. Monetary policy is already very loose. The problems that we have in the Eurozone economy uh, have to do with structural issues, have to do with fiscal policy coordination that the ECB cannot really address. Okay, we're going to wrap it up for now. You're going to stay with us, so we'll come back to the conversation with Thanos in just a moment. Yeah, well, let me ask a straw poll of, of two this morning. Um, do you think Huawei is a threat to US security or is a bargaining chip in the trade war? Thanos, yeah, uh, trade uh, war chip or threat to US security? Uh, I would say it's, you know, negotiating. Yeah, to- Jeffrey? Uh, well, I don't personally have the data to know whether it is really a security no, no, threat. <laughs> yeah. But very clearly, it Look, is you, being You've been used. talking to legal or something. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you not had that course yet? Uh, no, I've got that next week. I think you're scheduled for a, an important one-on-one, aren't oh, you? Just to talk about you. the... Uh... The reason I ask is because... Oh, back at me. <laughs> oh, you're feisty this morning. No, no. You had some sleep. A little bit. Yeah, okay. Welcome you're back. A, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, US authority might go back down Abington Green. It's, it's, it's less contentious than around the desk here. Uh, US authorities are reportedly probing fresh allegations of technology threat by Huawei. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, prosecutors are looking at instances of alleged property theft over a number of years, as well as Huawei's recruitment strategy. The Chinese tech company has been caught in the crosshairs of the US-China trade war, with Washington labelling it a national security threat. And that's exactly why I was asking that question. Yeah, and and just for our audience who are wondering what the heck's going on, I cannot confirm or deny whether Steve has a one-on-one scheduled with someone in management later on in the day or early next week. Uh, The prominent Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong has been arrested ahead of another weekend of planned protests in the city. Wong's pro-democracy party, uh, Demisisto, says he was, quote, suddenly pushed into a private car and escorted to police headquarters. Two other prominent campaigners were also arrested on Friday, adding to the almost 900 people that have been detained since protests broke out in mid-June against China's rule over Hong Kong. Wong became the face 
of the Hong Kong umbrella protests in 2014. He'd been released from prison in June after serving a five-week sentence for contempt of court. And this may make a, a very interesting test case in terms of that extradition legislation. Well, that's on the back burner at the moment, Which though. started all of this in the first place. But there is no extradition legislation <laughs> at the moment, at, my understanding. So I am just making the point that unlike some booksellers, one would not expect to see Joshua Wong appear on the other side of the border. Because it's too high profile? Because there was no extradition agreement. So let's wait and see how this story develops. And the book, says you're referring to, is, is a case last couple of years where... Uh, yes, it was. ...mysteriously uh, disappeared, apparently, and then appeared in China. Yeah? Yes, yes. OK. Yeah. Um, let us tell you what's coming. We've got a terrific interview coming up on uh, the show, actually. I was watching the same interview on Capcom. Back to the grind for Italy's Prime Minister, who's trying to string together a new government. But will it last? We are live from Rome with an absolutely key player... Uh, that Jumana has interviewed, uh, interviewed. That's coming up next. Plus, did you know we're, uh, we're podcasting furiously? Uh, if you can't get enough of Scorebox, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. It's actually Jeff's and Karen and I play as well. Uh, head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. Is it tomato? CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit easttechwest.com for an application to attend. I'll come back to the President of the Republic to lift the reserve and in case of a positive outcome to give him a proposal for the ministers to be appointed. Uh, that was Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte who must now pull together a new government with a different coalition. Giumana, you are in Rome and you've been speaking to one of the absolute key players and I don't know where the PD goes next. I don't even know if the PD uh, is one party. Perhaps you can fill in some of the gaps after your excellent interview. Thank you, Steve. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Matteo Renzi, none other than him, a former prime, prime minister as well as former leader of the PD. Now, just a, a little bit of uh, memory, if we can just go back and backtrack a little bit. Uh, back in 2016, December 2016, you may remember that Renzi put forward this referendum to modify the constitution to the public. He was crushed. It was a resounding defeat. 60% voted against it, after which he had to step down from his prime ministerial duties and uh, Paolo Gentiloni took on. Fast forward one year later, we had the Italian general election, which also saw a very big defeat for the PD party, where they only obtained about 18% about of the overall vote. So the last couple of years have been very tricky in the context of this centre-left, very established PD party, lots of different faces. And as we know, and as we've been discussing, there's been a lot of turnover, a lot of turnover in governments, also at leadership at the top. And so the PD party elected a new leader just a few months ago, Nicola Zingaretti. And uh, formally, he is the person who is representing uh, that party. 
But something changed last week when Matteo Renzi, who obviously is still very influential within the party, said, look, now is probably the time for us to try to get back into government, put aside our differences with Five Star and think about entering into dialogue with them with the possibility of getting back into government and breaking away from the past 15 months of, of extreme combative tension between Italy and Europe. And that's he, when he made that announcement, it was a key moment for the discussions because all of a sudden PD lawmakers rallied behind him and eventually Zingaretti rallied behind him and they accepted that uh, they could enter into this coalition government with uh, Five Star. But the big question that investors are asking is, look, how long can this government actually last for, given that those two parties are so different when it comes to their views, their ideologies, their platforms, the way they think about the world, and given how much they sparred over the years. I put this question to Matteo Renzi. I'm sure uh, this parliament will arrive to 2023. Uh, about the government, uh, we will see also because it depends on the quality of minister and of the, about the quality of the cabinet. Hmm, so the market is behaving as though this government is a done deal. He's saying, look, Parliament will last until 2023. Let's see for the government. Let's see. It, de it depends very much so on who they end up selecting for the ministers in the cabinet. And obviously that is Prime Minister Conte's job. And he will be having consultations right behind me in the Chamber of Deputies uh, for the next couple of days. So very crucial point there. And then the next obvious question is uh, that I asked Mr. Renzi is, why are you entering into this alliance with Five Star to begin with? It is a very odd alliance and people don't really believe that there can be a lot of crossover between the two parties. Let's take a listen. Ah, the question about the relation with the Five Star movement and our party is very difficult. Please let me be very frank with you. Also in the personal level, because I received a lot of, a lot of attacks from Five Star movement they told me about me, about my wife, about my family, every type of fake news. And with a lot of them, I'm in front of uh, trials in the process, in the court, because I received too much attacks. So there is also a personal sentiment, uh, feeling of uh, refusing this attack, but, but the politics. Politics is a very important thing. And today it's important for Italy to avoid the risk of Salvini and Putin, Salvini and anti-Euro, Salvini and sovereignists in the government. For that, I decided to accept the agreement with the Five Star Movement with only one thing, myself out of every type of role. I don't make this decision for myself, but for my country. So it's not really the warmest endorsement of this potential government from with Five Star coming from Mr. Renzi. He said that they've personally attacked him a lot in the past. So there's no love lost between the two of them. But putting aside his personal feelings, politics are more important. The number one motivation is to simply, quote, stop Salvini, which raises a, quest, a lot of questions about really how long this future coalition government can last for. And to rephrase what Mr. Salvini said yesterday, if the only glue that unites them is a joint hatred of Mr. Salvini, what can they offer to the Italian public? Questions that certainly investors and the public will want answered soon. Absolutely, Germana. And I think some interesting points you raised that we should put to Thanos Van Bikides, global head of G10FX Strategy Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, is Renzi the right outcome? in terms of the 
stability we hope to see for Italy and the implications for Italy breaching budgets? I mean, for now, definitely forming a new government coalition and avoiding a snap election uh, will be positive uh, uh, given the market concerns and the recent uncertainty. Uh, so this seems to be moving in the right direction. However, substantial challenges remain. Uh, as you pointed out, the 2020 budget is going to be very difficult to address the fact that the fiscal situation in Italy is off track. Beyond that, it's not clear for how long such a new coalition government will last. We may have another election uh, next year. And the long-term problems remain. Italy has a very high debt level, and Italy is an economy that cannot grow. Growth will be 0% this year, despite a very weak euro, historically very low borrowing cost, and a loose monetary and fiscal but policy. Carlos, you told us not 15 minutes ago that currencies, and I presume euros in there, are undervalued against the US dollar because they are performing below potential and the dollar and US assets are performing above potential. Given what you've just said, potentially the euro is not low enough given the, the, the third largest economy, certainly with the biggest debt market as well, a couple of trillion euros plus, is underperforming and is set to continue to underperform. So where's the growth out of Europe going to come from? Well, that's a good question. Actually, as long as the decoupling of the US and the Eurozone continues, the risks for the Euro are to the downside. If we look in the Eurozone, growth has been weak to a large extent because growth has been weak in Italy and in Germany which actually raises questions, should the ECB's policies to support Italy and Germany? These economies have their own problems. Italy specifically has been growing by close to 0% for the last 30 years, regardless of the level of the euro, regardless of growth in the rest of the eurozone and the global economy. There are structural rigidities that they need to address and they fail to implement reforms. Germany is another case where they have a completely unsustainable export-driven growth model that has to change and a fiscal policy that is too tight while they don't have a debt problem. So it is better for these economies to address directly their problems rather than the ECB keep easing policies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.